Today's Fat Girl Podcast is sponsored by PRN PharmaCal, an employee-owned company. PRN PharmaCal has been dedicated to developing specialized therapeutics that address the unmet, underserved, and overlooked needs of the veterinary medicine community since 1978. Their commitment? Quality solutions. As needed, when needed. For more information, go to prnpharmacal.com. Hi, Vetgirl here today with Dr. Simon Platt, who's a professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Platt, thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vetgirl podcast. Many thanks for the invitation. So one of the big topics that I often hear veterinarians debating over is what to do with the seizuring dog or cat. So I know you're uh, very well versed in this area. When do we actually take the time to make the decision to start a dog or a cat on an anticonvulsant? Well, that's a, a great first question. Many of our problems arise from not spending enough time with the owner and finding out several key points from them before we actually address the topic of which medication to start and when we should start. So we want first to assure ourselves that the animal, whether dog or cat, has actually experienced a seizure because there are several episodes, uh, sudden onset type collapsing episodes, which may mimic seizures. So we want to know fairly succinctly from the owner answers to the following four or five questions, which will help us understand whether it is a seizure. Firstly, what was the patient doing at the time uh, of the seizure just before? Most seizure patients would be doing nothing or sleeping as opposed to syncopal patients, which may be running around, being excited. Narcolepsy patients, another mimic of seizure activity would be being excited or eating. Neuromuscular collapse would be experiencing some sort of activity. Movement disorders, another mimic of seizure activity, can be either active during their period of collapse or, or just resting, so that in that case, that question wouldn't help. Moving on to the seizure event itself, we try to avoid asking how long the event would occur. That can be open to a lot of subjectivity. And we focus on whether the owners witness the limbs being rigid um, versus flaccid. Flaccid collapse would be more typical of neuromuscular collapse and syncope. Rigid collapse, more typical of seizure activity or a movement disorder. Uh, I ask also whether the animal urinated, salivated during the event. Again, that type of autonomic activity, more classic with seizures, can be seen with syncope as well. And then lastly, I ask them whether they believe the dog or cat was in any way responsive to them during the event, because that will then say whether we've got a seizure or syncope, in which case most patients are not responsive, versus a neuromuscular collapse uh, and a movement disorder where they will be responsive. Uh, obviously, narcolepsy, there'll be no response there. So using those questions, we can try to discern what the patient experienced. And the final question I have for the owners is what happened right at the end. And with seizure activity, it's not uncommon for the patient to actually experience a period of confusion, be it for seconds, minutes, or even hours later, some form of incoordination and maybe blindness as well. Whereas we would see a syncopal patient experience very little and get back to normality quickly. The same with narcolepsy, the same with neuromuscular collapse and movement disorders. So once we've ascertained that, that we believe it's a seizure activity, we look at when to start the medication and what to use. And with the when to start question, that really uh, requires some type of pattern to the seizure activity, meaning a frequency or, and or severity. 
the frequency at this stage we believe should be no more than one a month and preferably no more than one every three months once we see that type of frequency then we believe that the animal should be on lifelong therapy unless there's an underlying toxic or metabolic cause the what to use then is the biggest question and we have several options these days for both dogs and cats so one quick question, oftentimes pet owners will come in with their smartphone and they'll show us videos. Do you actually recommend owners videotaping these, quote, episodes to help differentiate seizures versus syncope or does it not benefit the veterinarian in determining the origin? Yes, absolutely. We do these days recommend getting hold of some type of, of video footage. Often these events are obviously unpredictable, but many times they can get a snippet of the event or even the entire event onto their phone or any type of video recording device. And that will help us many times identify whether this is a seizure, whether it's syncopal, neuromuscular collapse, narcolepsy, that sort of thing. If the, the veterinarian that they take the video footage to is unable to uh, differentiate because it, it, still, it still is quite confusing, then they're free to send that to any of their lo local neurologists um, or anyone around the country, which then will help again with the determination of whether this is a seizure, seizure activity or not. It's not always the case that we can use the video footage and say for sure this is seizure activity but many times it can actually help. Wonderful. Now, I will disclose, I trained in vet school about 20 years ago, and at that time, we were all taught to use phenobarbital, and then we changed to potassium bromide. And then in the clinic that I work at now, which is a specialty clinic, every single different emergency doctor uses a different drug. So some will use other types. Um, can you talk to me about the pros and cons or some of the potential side effects or benefits of some of these different anticonvulsant choices that we have out there right now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, we're at a point in time where we have the luxury of being able to choose one of several options for us. Um, human medicine has multiple options uh, that we cannot use due to their toxicity or frequency of required administration or even expense. Yet we're left with several still, though, that we can use that do have pros and cons that should, should be addressed. And for an individual patient, there's probably no gold standard. If you look at phenobarbital, it's still the most powerful anticonvulsant out there for dogs and cats. And at this stage, it's suggested that 80% or more of idiopathic epileptic dogs will be controlled well with this drug. And approximately 90% of uh, epilepsy of unknown cause cases will um, be uh, controlled well with, with phenobarbital as well. We're aware of the possible toxic issues that phenobarbital may be associated with. So in dogs, that's going to be a reversible hepatic dysfunction and potentially bone marrow suppression that may be of an idiosyncratic nature. The situation in cats is slightly different in that those things haven't really been well documented. And so it is often a safer drug to use in cats than in dogs. The side effects that we see in dogs with short-term initiation of this drug are PUPD, polyphagia, and maybe a little bit of sedation. But most of the time, those things will disappear within the first two or three weeks. We may see PUPD in cats, but they're more resistant to the polyphagia side effects and sedation is, is again, less noted with, with the use of this drug. 
So it is a good first drug to use. However, it, it does come with those side effects that we must monitor the patient for. And therefore, it may be seen, even, a, even though it's as a cheap option, it may be seen as an option that comes with a bit of work required on both sides, the, the owner and, and the veterinarian, in that frequent blood tests are necessary to evaluate the bone marrow and its function, and also blood tests to evaluate the levels of phenobarbital in the serum to make sure that we don't get to the top end of the reference range, which may be where liver dysfunction is, is most likely to occur. When we talk about potassium bromide, it's a much safer drug. It is, is used in, in dogs and cats. However, lately, uh, cat, it's safe as a last resort in cats, uh, as a lot of caution should be used with, it, with its administration based on the fact that it can be associated with a feline asthma type syndrome and it can be fatal. So we'd probably reserve that to a last ditch attempt drug for cats with seizure activity. Whereas dogs, um, it could be a second or third choice drug based on its safety, based on the fact it will help control about 50% of idiopathic epileptic dogs. However, it takes about three to five months to reach steady state if used at a maintenance level. And that means it's not a very flexible drug to use. You can use a loading dose of this drug, meaning we use a very high dose, about 400 to 600 milligrams per kilogram over four to six days to get them to the steady state more rapidly and then follow that with a maintenance dose. Unfortunately, though, that means that you're going to require a hospitalized patient to do that because they will experience fairly marked sedation in most cases. The newer drugs that are available are less sedating in, the, in their effect and they can actually be reasonably efficacious. They each have about 50 to 60% efficacy based on some small studies that are out there. They haven't treated anywhere near as many dogs over the years uh, as phenobarbital and potassium bromide. Uh, and their overall side effect profile is pretty low. Individually, if we just mention these drugs as to what's available, we have levetiracetam, which is available as a standard and an extended release drug. This is extremely safe. It's not metabolized in the liver. It's good for both dogs and cats. Often needs to be given three times a day in dogs and cats as a standard drug and twice a day in dogs and cats if it's an extended release. The extended release formulation, unfortunately, is only available as 500 and 750 milligram capsules. And so not that useful for small dogs and, and cats, uh, but it is something to consider for, the, for our larger patients. That's something that, that can control approximately 60% of cases. And the only side effects that are documented are sedation and potentially ataxia. Zanisamide, another novel agent, something you used commonly in people and is some people's first choice as an anticonvulsant because it is a twice a day drug, limited side effects, but it is a sulfur related drug. And so sulfur side effects can be seen when used in dogs. Not much information available when used in cats, so it should be used with a bit of caution, but twice a day therapy advised and maybe 60%, one study says up to about 80% of patients with idiopathic epilepsy may be well controlled when used as an adjunct. And that's the problem with most of these newer drugs. There aren't any studies that evaluate it as a first line defense. So when used as an adjunct, it's already being used in a tough to control seizure case. So we have then uh, phenobarb, potassium bromide, levetiracetam, 
and zanisamide. A couple of others just to briefly mention include gabapentin, probably more well-known as an analgesic, often for nerve-related pain, some bone-related pain. It is actually an anticonvulsant, but needs to be used three times a day. It's perhaps not as strong as the other anticonvulsants. There is one study that suggests up to 50% of cases may be reasonably well controlled. So it's a useful adjunct to have in that it's quite a safe drug with the only side effects, again, being ataxia and sedation. There are a couple of other drugs that are coming onto the market in the future, and so people should keep their eyes out for this. And, and remember that just because it's a new drug that's being marketed for epilepsy in cats and dogs, potentially it doesn't mean that it uh, is coming with a lot of clinical evidence. It has been not going to have been used for years, and as the other drugs have, and it may have side effects which will only appear after several months to years of, of use. Zanisamide is a good example of that in that initially it was marketed as an extremely safe drug, but it does go through the liver and it has been associated in a couple of cases with a reversible liver dysfunction, much like phenobarb. So in, in essence, a good drug that can be used twice a day, but still should be monitored closely in terms of potential side effects. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, in terms of long-term monitoring, I know for some of these drugs, we don't measure levels at all, but specifically for phenobarbital and potassium bromide, do you mind talking a little bit about how often we should be monitoring them and how acceptable should we tolerate patients being in the range or outside of the range of our treatment goals? Yeah, it's a good question. Many of the newer drugs don't require monitoring and there is very little association between their serum levels and the success of the medication. We do occasionally um, obtain serum levels for these newer medications, those being gabapentin, levetiracetam, and zanisamide, just to make sure that there is some drug in the system if we have any concerns about compliance or um, long-term efficacy. But it's really phenobarbital and potassium bromide that are the drugs that we would more routinely measure. And Ideally, we would do this every six months in a case where the owners do have some financial difficulty once a year uh, is acceptable. We're trying to reduce the labor intensity of, of medicating these patients if possible and reduce the cost associated with it. But every six months gives us a chance to make sure we can identify a pattern where perhaps the dose is causing increased serum levels or decrease serum levels if uh, the, the dog is starting to metabolize the drug more, more aggressively. It also helps us in the future if a problem arises, we can look back and say, well, for the last three years, every six months, we've seen a fairly stable serum level, and now we've seen one rapidly elevate or rapidly decrease. So it will help us with that. And at the same time, it gives us a chance to check on the patient in terms of the most recent seizure frequency and severity that the owners are witnessing in terms of any potential side effects. So it, it, it's a, a good way for us to continue with the patient relationship and, and make sure we're not going to get into any difficulties with the use of these drugs. So I'd advise every six months if possible, but once a year at, at, at minimum. And I wouldn't uh, be too rigidly fixed to the level itself. I would always treat the dog. That's what's most important. The upper reference range for phenobarbital is somewhat of a ceiling level. We wouldn't want to go much higher than that because the higher end of that reference range is associated with a more likely chance of liver dysfunction. 
So we wouldn't want to go higher. If you are below the low end of that reference range, however, and the dog is well controlled, that's acceptable. So we focus on the dog. We look at how many seizures the dog is having, how severe those seizures are, how severe the postictal period is, and say whether we need to increase the drug and only look at it reaching its full potential as an individual drug when it gets to the top end of that reference range. It, with potassium bromide, the top end of the reference range isn't as much of a ceiling level for us. It does imply that you're more likely to get signs of sedation and ataxia, but being that it's an extremely safe drug otherwise, we don't often um, suggest stopping at that level if the dog is managing it well and if the dog needs more drugs. So they are guides versus rigid um, levels which must be uh, here to in, ter in terms of our next move, we're always going to focus on treating the patient before we actually focus on the serum level itself. So being that you practice in academia, you probably have much better and more compliant owners than I do. <laughs> but how do you emphasize to pet owners the common problem of pet owners just stopping their anticonvulsant therapy because they feel like their dog hasn't seizured in a couple of weeks or months? Is there um, some type of particular language that you use when talking to them about about doing this? Yeah, I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure how successful it is in the end, but we do. We do face that problem frequently. If we have a patient that that is medicated appropriately and doesn't have any side effects and they're not exhibiting seizures, we may we may be approached about reducing that medication or even stopping it. And so we do talk to them about two major, major issues. One is that if we reduce or stop the medication, there is the potential for side effects to ensue because the, the dog will have become addicted to that medication. And so they need to reduce it extremely slowly. In, in humans, a, a rapid reduction or stopping the medication too quickly can actually result in seizures or even status epilepticus. The other aspect that we talked to them about is the fact that if you reduce the medication and the dog starts to exhibit seizures again, it is extremely difficult in our experience to get the same level of control back by reinitiating the drug. There seems to be a, a reasonable perception by an owner that we could reduce it, maybe even stop it, and if they come back again, we'll get the, the dog back on that medication. If the seizures re-emerge quickly on reduction or cessation of the medication, then it is extremely difficult to get that level of control back again. And so we'd be happy to work with the owners to try and find a, a dose where the dog does not have any issues with its quality of life. But we urge them to not reduce or stop the medication without discussing it with us and just consider it a lifelong therapy. And perhaps the best way that we found to tackle it is right from the start and, and advise the owners that they could get into a situation where they believe stopping it may, may be a good thing but they shouldn't be tricked into this. We tell them right from the start, this is a lifelong therapy. So that it comes with a lot of considerations, not only about how it will affect the dog's quality of life, but their quality of life and, uh, and also the expenses that are associated with that. Wonderful. Thank you. And one last question that uh, I know you probably get asked all the time. When do we add a second drug, a second anticonvulsant? And likewise, how long does that patient have to clinically improve before we decide to wean out one of the drugs? 
Yeah, another good question. We do get that frequently. Um, we have to address it on an individual basis. Uh, if we try to come up with some black and white indicators for the initiation of a second drug, those are that we are not getting successful control of seizure frequency and or severity with the first drug. And so it comes down a little bit to what the decision was in that dog or that individual patient right at the start of initiating the first drug. As you said, that we would like to see no more than one seizure every three months, it's definitely no more than one seizure every month. And so if that can't be achieved with a first drug and you have maximized the utility of that first drug by taking it to, in Femid Barbital's case, that the higher end of the reference range or to a point where they're exhibiting side effects which are affecting the quality of life, then we would add a second drug. Side effect issue is an important thing, though, to add in that some dogs may be well controlled, but their side effects are intolerable to the dog and also the owner. And so we look at adding a second drug to then potentially wean down uh, the first drug and, and maybe minimize those side effects. The things to say about that are that we're always doing one thing at a time. So we will add a drug before we will exchange it or before we will start reducing uh, the first drug. However, unsuccessful it's perceived to be we need to just add a drug and then see the success of adding that drug before we would alter the drug that's already on board uh, and if we see success depends on how long before we'd expect it with that second added drug we would then start to reduce the first drug by a maximum of about 25 percent uh, every few weeks, depending again on what drug we've actually chosen and how long it takes to get to steady state. So as an example, if we used phenobarb and for a given reason, be it side effects or still a very frequent seizure uh, frequency or, uh, uh, or severity, um, we wanted to add potassium bromide, we would add that drug and then we would have to wait at least three to five months before potassium bromide reaches steady state before we could judge the effect of that drug. If potassium bromide was the drug we'd want to wean down, however, again, it would take three to five months with any reduction before we could suggest that now we've reached a new level. So depends on the initial flexibility of the drug we're using. With the newer drugs that are available, sinisamide, levetiracetam, for instance, uh, any change that's made to the dose would potentially result in a steady state in just a few days. So there's more flexibility there in terms of increasing and decreasing the dose. However, the philosophy of adding or decreasing the medication stays the same. We do one thing at a time and we do it gradually and we express to the owners the concerns that we have about what may result from this change so they're aware of this right from the start. Wonderful information. And I promise my last question, I occasionally get asked this in the emergency room. What role do you think diet has? Or what do you say to a pet owner who says, should I try a quote seizure diet? Is there enough information out there? Or what are we recommending in veterinary medicine? Well, this is a question that comes at a, a very important time because there, there is a diet that's just been released that uh, will, as an adjunct therapy, potentially help seizure frequency severity in an individual dog uh, coming to your your question though as to can it help there is there is enough evidence in human medicine uh, and in experimental work not so much in, in canine or feline epilepsy but there is enough evidence to suggest that it can play a role and it can play a role as an adjunct um, which is uh, meaning that it, it 
on its own is unlikely to be the sole treatment that would be successful for, for, for epilepsy. It's unlikely to cure any patient of the epileptic events. So adding it in on top of medication may actually help reduce the amount of medication that's required or may help reduce the severity of the seizures that are seen in the face of the medication. So a lot of potential, but it's an individual situation. Adding a diet to medication is going to take two or three months perhaps for that diet to actually have effect if it will have effect. Uh, and in some patients, it's seen to have an effect and some patients it's not. It's early days for us to know whether any of the, the dietary therapies, uh, particularly the new one that's just been commercially uh, introduced, will actually play a huge role in epilepsy treatment. We haven't seen enough dogs clinically treated with it evaluated them to say quite what it will do, but there's at least evidence to say that it could help without doing any harm. There are several food supplements that potentially can also help. Um, their essential fatty acids, for, for instance, um, may play, play a role in reducing seizure frequency and severity. We're unaware, though, at this stage, what the dose should be, how frequently you should give them, and quite what the anticipated effect would be. So we advise owners that that diet may play a reasonable adjunctive role, and um, if it's not contraindicated because of the dog's or cat's other medical history, then it would be worth trying it for several months to see whether we get an effect. I would urge if we do get an effect that any change in medication that's made subsequent to that is made very slowly and carefully because reliance on just the diet um, is, is probably too much for us to, to ask for. Wonderful. Great information. And I know that our Vet Girl podcast listeners will absolutely love all the information. Again, thank you for taking the time to do the Vet Girl podcast on seizure control, Dr. Platt. <laughs>